The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. seems so often that we don't have uh, what we need to have in order to live the life that we want to live. Just don't have it. It just eludes us. And yet the good news of Pentecost is that You and I, though we may be as beggars sitting on the step, there is next to us a giant door, a beautiful door that invites us to enter into the beautiful life. Let's look at this text together. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, on page 886 of our Pew Bible. I invite you to pull out uh, the Bible and let's stand together and read this. Read this together. We read this together because it's a reminder that this is God's Word and it's perfect and the sermon is just really close. (laughs) After we're done reading this, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Listen carefully. You're reading God's Word. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. At three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple, called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass fades and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. A little while ago, I was sitting uh, with a, a married couple, a man and a woman, and um, they were very angry at each other. Clearly, they had lost hope uh, for their marriage. And as I sat there and listened to them and watched them go back and forth between each other, I, I was beginning to lose hope myself. Uh, they, he, she was very, very angry at him. He was very, very angry at her. He he looked at her and he said, You know, I'm the only one working in this relationship. Why don't you pull your weight? She uh, had had a few uh, odd jobs, but her real love was photography. She just had never figured out a way to get paid for it. But every time she had one of these jobs, he would say, She would not continue on. She'd do something stupid and lose the job. And now, he says, we are $30,000 in debt on our credit cards. And she would look at him, and she would say, 
You know, ever since he came back from fighting, he has had this post-traumatic stress disorder, but has done nothing about it. And he will turn towards me and raise his voice, and his whole face just turns red with fury and start criticizing me, tearing me apart. I've seen him so get angry these last few months that I'm actually afraid for my safety. And I think I need to leave the house. He uh, drinks way too much. He'll occasionally set up an appointment with his therapist, but will rarely keep the appointment, just won't show up. And he never takes his medication. And they go back and forth, shouting at each other. And I'm thinking, what can I do to help this couple? I feel totally incompetent. Now I remember why I don't do much marriage counseling. Uh, (laughs) Silver and gold. Have I none? And I say to them, so, what a pastor would say, what a Christian would say, well, why don't we pray? Right? And so I said, I, I didn't even know how we could pray. So I said, what, what should we pray for? And the guy looks at me and he says, pray for a total miracle. <laughs> Just like that. I thought, okay, not a lot of faith going into this prayer. <laughs> um, but we prayed, I prayed. Prayed for her, I prayed for him, I prayed for their relationship. Hope against hope in the name of Jesus Christ. I have no silver or gold. It's an expression of our inadequacy. It's a recognition that in life somehow we are all trespassers. We just don't have what it takes. Luke, in telling us the follow-up to his gospel story, tells us the things that Jesus continued to teach and do. We read in the beginning of chapter of, uh, chapter 1 of Acts. In the story of the apostles, the book of Acts. And here, right after Pentecost, he gives us an incident in the life of the church that will shape its understanding of Jesus Christ uh, in their midst. It's a story of Peter and John as they're going into the temple for worship It's a story of a man who has utter inability. Now, I'm not sure he has utter inability, actually, but that's the way Luke presents him to us. He presents this man as a man without a name and a man with incapacity. We're told that he was lame since birth. We get the physician's interest of of Luke, the author. And that we're told that he has to be carried every day to the temple steps, probably by family or friends, but how helpful could they be? Because he apparently doesn't have the money he needs to eat food, and so he's begging for alms. He's resting upon the charitable distribution of those who come into the temple for worship three times a day. No name, but he's defined by his inability, isn't he? And it's his inability that shapes his way of relating to family and friends who carry him. Shapes his way of relating to strangers who walk by him uh, every day as they come in for worship. Shapes his way of relating to uh, his work and the things that he does. And that he's a beggar. That seems to be his name. Shapes his self-understanding. We all have inability. We all butt up against a wall in life. A wall that says, no, you're not going to pass through here. Just not good enough. Just not strong enough. Just not rich enough. Just not beautiful enough. And we let that wall become to us 
as a name. We say, I can't find a spouse. And so we have a name for that. I am a single. We say, I lost my job. And we have a name for that too. I am a failure. We say, I do shameful things. I am worthless. I can't get pregnant. We give ourselves a name. I am impotent. My spouse does not show me affection. We have a name for that. I am ugly. My mother died when I needed her most. And we say, I am forsaken. I'm not doing well in school. And we name ourselves dumb. I have very little money. Name for that, I am poor. I don't know how to stop criticizing my friend. I am mean. You see, all of these are for us, become for us a name. In the biblical sense, a name is a representation of an inner essence. It's a label, but a description of who we really are. And though I may be George and you, Susan, the names we really believe about ourselves are these names that describe our incapacity. We allow them to define who we are. When we say and we meet somebody, we oftentimes say, how do you do? And uh, in our inner ear, we're saying, well, not very well, not much of anything. You know, or what do you do? Well, I wish I did something of significance, but I really don't. You know, that's the way we answer back in our mind. I have no silver or gold. And so this man, so defined, nameless as he is, lame and begging, sits on the steps of the temple. Temple. It's a place where God had put his name. And the worshipers would come streaming uh, three times a day for prayers, morning, afternoon, and evening. And this is the three o'clock prayer service. Peter and uh, John are just in the midst of the throng as they, as they come up these stairs. There are many entrances to the temple, many doors or gates. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus, you know, was a general in the uh, Jewish army. He defects and becomes a Roman citizen. Gives us great record of uh, first century Judaism. He describes the temple and he gives us description of ten doors. Uh, ten doors that were uh, 30 cubits high, that's 45 feet. And they were all uh, inlaid or um, covered with or plated with gold and silver. Silver and gold, Josephus repeats over and over. Doors plated with silver and gold. But he says there's one door, one door that stands out among them all. It was exquisite. Yes, it had silver and gold on it, but it had something more valuable, Corinthian bronze. In that day, for some reason, Corinthian bronze was more valuable, more treasured, more precious, more sought after around the world than silver or gold. And here was a door made solid of Corinthian bronze. And whereas the others were 45 feet high, this was 75 feet high, almost twice as high. Imagine the size of this great door. It's a beautiful door. And this is where this nameless uh, beggar sits, the doorstep of beauty. And uh, if we were to ask what's on the other side of the door, we would do a little biblical theology. We would recall the construction of the temple. Remember David? The king of Israel he was a king, and it was uh, his desire to build a house for God's name. 
He was a man after God's heart. He loved God, loved living with God, loved the idea that God was filling his life and a part of everything that he was a part of. And so he wanted to represent that reality of God's presence with us in a temple. He said, let me build this temple. But the Lord had said to him, no, David, you won't be the one building my house. But on his deathbed, the aged David lies at the end of his days. And Nathan, the prophet, who had sometimes spoken good words and sometimes bad words to David, comes alongside. And Nathan speaks to him prophetically. So the Lord, through him, says to David in 2 Samuel 7.12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I, the Lord, will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wow, a house for the name of God. It will be my son who will be a king. And, of course, his first son, his most immediate son, the proximate child that he has, is named Solomon. And God will allow that Solomon can build that first physical temple. And the Lord will say in the day of Solomon, once it is completed, I have consecrated this house that you have built and put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. For the Lord to say, I put my name there, is to say, I put my presence. I put my power. I put my essence. So he says, my heart is behind that door in the temple. The name of the Lord is a rich theological concept throughout the Old Testament. It comes up literally hundreds of times, representing his power and presence in our lives. After Cain is, um, murders his brother Abel, we're told that a new child is born to Adam and Eve, uh, Seth, and to him uh, a child named Enosh. And it says then at that time people began to invoke the name of the Lord. They begin to call that name into their lives. And uh, later, another famous instance of this, Abram who becomes Abraham. His name is changed by the name of the Lord. He's on this journey, leaving his ancestral home, and there in the promised land, what will become the promised land of Canaan, uh, God comes to him and makes this promise to your offspring, Abram, I will give this land. And there Abraham built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. One of my favorite uh, uh, stories of the name of the Lord is Jacob. Remember, Jacob had swindled his brother Esau out of his birthright, basically taken away his hope for the future. And uh, so one night, he's, he's got later in life an opportunity to be rejoined with his brother, and he feels that he will most likely be engaged in battle, and he'll be killed. And so he awaits that next day, and we're told that a, a divine figure encounters Jacob. It's kind of a man. You mean to be the Lord himself in some way. And these two engage in a wrestling match. They're wrestling with one another. They're wrestling over a name. If you know the story, you know that this figure will say to Jacob, I have a new name for you. That name is Israel because you have striven with God. And Jacob will not let go of this man until he tells him, what is your name? And he blesses Israel. So that's what's behind the door. That's, what the, that's the beauty behind the beautiful door. 
But I think on this day, as Peter comes up, I think it's really Peter who wrestles. Peter who wrestles within his own heart uh, for a name, for his own name. We're told at the end of chapter 2 that there were many signs and miracles in this Pentecost community that take place. But this is the first one that we're shown, and I'm not sure that this miracle doesn't happen in time before that summary statement at the end of chapter 2. And so here Peter comes with John. They're walking up to the temple. They're coming up uh, these steps, and they've no doubt passed many beggars along the way. right? But this one catches their attention. Luke tells us he asks for alms. He asks for help. Now, you and I know what it's like to pass somebody who's asking for financial assistance on the street, right? And what do you do? It's oftentimes uh, easy just to reflexively turn away, not to make eye contact. There's this kind of social convention, isn't there? People who are on the street have trouble making eye contact uh, with you. There's a burden, a weight of shame around being so uh, incapable and without help. Likewise, for those who might have a few coins in their pockets, there's kind of burden and shame about... Um, not feeling comfortable giving and, and uh, the, the intractable problem of suffering in our world that we just, like our few pennies in our pockets will make a little difference. And so we avoid eye contact just to kind of disavow the reality that there is such pain in the world. And so I imagine Peter, like you and me, just walking by in that same way. But he, he looks at this man intently, the text tells us. And he tells the man, look at us. Instantly, he humanizes them, and there is this fixation of eyes, one upon the other. They look deep into one another's souls. And I think Peter begins to wrestle at that point. Luke uses a phrase that he's used earlier with Peter in his gospel. It was that night that Jesus had been arrested in the garden. And uh, Peter had followed from a distance because he had said, Lord, I will always be with you. And yet he'd lost courage, hadn't he? And as Jesus is taken and brutalized, Peter in the outer courtyard by a firelight wrestles that night. And someone engages his eyes in just the same way. We're told there's a servant girl who looks intently at Peter. She looks at him to try to know who he is, really who he is, what kind of a man he is. Is he a man who is associated with this name, Jesus. Is he one of them or not? And Peter utterly disclaims any association with that name. I do not know him. I have never known him. You're wrong. I'm not one of them. And he's a broken man in tears. He remembers that in this gaze. Silver and gold, I have none. If he were tempted to pray for this beggar, What right, he thinks, would I have, could I have to offer a prayer for this man, given that I'm worse than he is? I have known Jesus Christ and failed him. I may not be physically lame, but I am a spiritual cripple. And I believe Peter must have heard a kind of a demonic whisper in his ear that said, You are a failure. Don't you dare offer a prayer for this man in Jesus' name. For you have betrayed Jesus, and Jesus will give, has given up on you. That's the first flashback. I think, though, that Peter must immediately get another flashback. It's that which opposes the first and which sends him into a wrestling match. The, the second flashback uh, comes 
Much earlier than that, earlier in the ministry of Jesus, when Jesus gathers his disciples, the twelve, and then seventy. Seventy disciples around him. And he says, I have a field trip for you. Uh, kind of a training exercise. We're going out today into the world. And he sends them, he pairs them up. Perhaps even Peter and John were paired together and sent out 70 others ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. And he says to them, interestingly enough, don't take any money with you. No silver, no gold, no purse, no bag, no sandals. Whenever you enter a house, say peace to this house. And when they came back, these 70 disciples were ecstatic, the beauty that they saw. Because they had taken with them the name of Jesus Christ. And that name had done powerful things. Lord, in your name, even the demons submitted. It's a beautiful life that they saw. And now Peter remembers healing in the name of Jesus on that exercise and the accusations of his spirit or a demonic voice and he wrestles, what is my name? What capacities are available to me at the gate of beauty? This This building was filled when it first was open with the smoke and the glory of God, the presence of God manifested very physically through that. And now he remembers just a few days prior as the apostles had gathered in an upper room together on the day of Pentecost, so that room had been filled with smoke, tongues of fire. This is the age of the Spirit. And just as he had said to the people who witnessed that, he also can find forgiveness in this name. Peter says in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Apostle Paul would say, you are a temple. The beauty of God present in your life is as tangible as the beauty of God in his temple. It's the place of his heart. It's the place that brings his presence and his power to engagement with the circumstances of our lives. And so Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I have you, I give. I say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he does. This man stands and walks. I love this guy. He starts leaping in the temple and praising God with joy. And everybody now immediately recognizes who he really is. His true nature, as all of our natures, will be whole and healed someday in the full presence of God. It's a beautiful life. Well, what does Peter give this man? Healing, yes, but I think something more significant. He gives him the name of Jesus Christ. He gives him that simple profession of faith that in the midst of the trials and traumas, in the midst of our disappointments and failures, we live in the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. And that's the one fixed point in life, that simple profession that Jesus is Lord. He doesn't always heal us. In fact, uh, this beggar, uh, former beggar, and Peter both will still have no silver or gold on that time. They will still find themselves people with needs. And so do we as we gather as a community. But friends, because of Jesus Christ and his spirit today, we can be a community of hope. And I tell you that prayer for that couple, that man and that woman, 
uh, offered in the name of Jesus bore fruit. That woman approached me a number of months later and she said, George, with a smile on her face, I want to tell you that the miracle came. Miracle came. Yeah, we found a, a, a marriage counselor. We're getting help for our marriage. My husband has gone back to a psychiatrist. He's taking his medicine and I'm about to start a new job. I said, wow. So can you and I live as people of hope? Can we live as people who have hope for our students, for our patients, for our neighbors, for our clients, for our employers, for our families, our relationships, our children? Yes, even hope for ourselves. I think we can. We are called to be a community of hope, carrying forth the name of Jesus Christ. So today we express that hope uh, in a simple healing service. I'm going to invite our elders to come to the front now. They'll be across the front here. They'll be in the balcony as well, and then in the narthex. And you're invited to come and bring a prayer. You know, oftentimes we think, well, God knows what I need. If he cares about it, he'll get to it in his time. But no, you know, Jesus says, pray. You need to pray. Very specifically, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. Jesus says. And James says it's it's not wishful thinking or good intentions that God honors. It's prayer. You have not because you have not asked, James says. And so he invites the community over which he has uh, oversight to live into the reality that they are called to be a community of hope. James 5, he writes, Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.